Welcome to Over the Hill. My name is Roland Templeman, and our guest this week is Guy Mentel. Guy is currently executive director of a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and he's done a lot of really cool things since graduating from Georgetown, including living in Bogota, Colombia, working for the Senate Judiciary Committee during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, and working for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden's presidential campaigns. He also has some great takes on Wawa and what it was like to live with me for four years in college. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. <laughs> Most posters, you just have the photo and that's it. This one had photo and text. Yeah, no, this was this was the real deal. Yeah, this, it was legit. Uh, this you is didn't even need a frame because uh-huh. it was so legit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a frame didn't even cross my mind those days. <laughs> I didn't even know what a frame was. <laughs> Alright, you wanna get started on this? Yeah, let's do it. Welcome to another episode of Over the Hill. Uh, this week our guest is Guy Mantel. So Guy is a graduate of our Georgetown class of 2014. Since graduating from college, Guy has spent time as a Princeton and Latin America fellow, um, where he was based out of Bogota, Colombia, and worked for a law firm there. He was a legal analyst at the law firm of Cobra and Kim in DC. He served as a field organizer for Hillary Clinton's campaign. He formed a political action group in Arlington, Arlington Virginia. Um, He also held a position as a law clerk with the Department of Defense. He's worked with the Senate Judiciary Committee um, during the very compelling period of Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings. He also served as a national security correspondent for U.S. Senator Tim Kaine, and he was in that role during Trump's impeachment hearings. And most recently, he just started a job as the executive director of Global Americans, uh, which is a think tank focused on humans, human rights, democracy, and social inclusion in Latin America. Guy also advised on Latin American policy during the Democratic primaries in 2019 and 2020, and he is currently working as a volunteer advisor for Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Guy has also been a law student for the last three years at Georgetown Law, um, and many of the job experiences I just listed, he was actually doing full-time while serving as a law student. You know, in spite of the fact that I live with Guy for four years and I'm fully aware of how little he is able to sleep on a nice nightly basis and how much coffee he drinks, um, as someone who also just finished law school a couple months ago myself, I can say that it's not exactly a vacation and um, what he's managed to accomplish in the last few years while also studying the law is, is truly incredible. So now we're, now that we're done with the resume, I think, you know, we can get a little bit more into your your journey and, and how you've ended up where you are right now um, and how Georgetown has impacted that trajectory. And I actually, I actually wanted to start um, with your time in high school at, at Lower Marion High School in Philadelphia. So one of the things that Guy and I bonded over and we were chatting on, on Charms, which is Georgetown's roommate equivalent of Tinder, um, was, was Kobe Bryant. Um, I, was, I was hitting on Guy pretty relentlessly over, over roommate Tinder. Um, but I'm, I'm a lifelong Laker fan, and, and so Kobe's always been kind of like a superhero to me. And Guy played basketball for Lower Marion, where Kobe attended high school. So I know that 
you know, guy that you looked up to him as well. And given that, you know, Kobe was such a, you know, notoriously hard worker and after living with you, I can, I can also attest the fact, attest to the fact that you're probably one of the hardest working people that I've ever encountered. So I've always been curious if the experience of playing basketball at Lower Marion, of meeting Kobe every year, of having him come to the high school, be, you know, like this huge figure um, in your life growing up, if that played a part in you developing such a strong work ethic. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it is uh, an honor to be featured in this podcast alongside, um, and I've seen the I and the Tate episodes so far, uh, both of whom are far more impressive than I am. And, uh, and you yourself just graduating law school and, and now going to one of the top firms in the country. So I uh, want to give you claps there. I, I, I did this part out. Was that? You might have to cut, cut that part out, guys. <laughs> I did this in part to see how many compliments I can squeeze out of you. Uh, so, so this was more than, uh, than the entire time I've known you. So this is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I think, I think growing up in Lower Marion, particularly if you are a part of the Lower Marion basketball program, you, we all lived in, in Kobe's shadow in so many ways. Um, I think if you show up to any gym uh, in the Philadelphia area, uh, and you say that you play basketball for Lower Marion, everyone knows what that means. And it was a huge part of not only my, my high school career, but my middle school career as well, to the extent that you believe that, that, that habits are formed early. But it was, it, was, uh, it was a big piece. I mean, I think what was unique about Kobe, and I think what people in LA loved about Kobe, certainly what people in Philly loved about Kobe, was he was a person, and it feels so weird to speak about him in the past tense, yeah. but he was, um, he was a person who... who bent the universe to his will. It, uh, he was obviously freakishly talented and, and an unbelievable competitor, but, but, but I think what separated him from everybody else was, was that work ethic. And, and it was something that, I mean, so my, my varsity coach at Lower Marion was the same coach that Kobe had. And it was something that they shoved down our throats from day one. Um, you, were, you were on the radar from the second that you walked into that building. And if you were on the basketball program, you had eyes on you. And I think, again, like I think Lower Marion is not only uh, a basketball powerhouse because it is, it is home to a lot of talented players, it's because of the philosophy that they, they taught us. And, and so much of that was reflected in, in everything that Kobe did, which is that you might not be the most talented player. I surely wasn't. Um, I was probably the least athletic player on the court 99% of the time, uh, but I, set the record for, as, as the coach called it, floor burns, led the team in charges. Uh, like you do the little things well, and, and I think on net, you make a big difference. And so I think that was something, I mean, I remember I wrote my Georgetown application essay in part, and this in retrospect sounds really corny, um, in part about the values that I learned through that, um, through growing up right outside of Philly and, and, um, and, and having the basketball program be a big part of my my high school career. And, and I think it definitely played a big role in, in my work ethic. Well, shockingly, in spite of all the, the charges that it sounded like you took in high school, it doesn't seem like that caused you to lose many brain cells in the process. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, what do you think, what do you think you were applying your work ethic to during that period of high school? Like obviously it was somewhat focused on basketball cause that was a big part of your life, but what were some of your other goals back then? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I knew at that point what I wanted to do. Um, I think, uh, so, so similar to, to Tate and Aya, um, I, I'm also a first-generation college student, and 
my philosophy was that, that there are no shortcuts to this and that I need to bust my butt and, and, and do as well as I possibly can to get into the best schools that I possibly can. And not only get into the best schools that I possibly can, but, but get into a, a place where I'm competitive for as many scholarships as I can possibly get. Yeah. Um, and so that was the only thing on my mind. It was, it was pretty um, uh, tunnel vision in that respect. I, I was like, I'm gonna finish towards the top of my class and I'm gonna make sure that my grades are in a place where I'm as competitive as possible for as many scholarships as I can get so I can not have finances uh, be a limiting factor. I think going into Georgetown, I, I was planning on being a psych major. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, we had um, we had Sabat together, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think there was a saying that you are you think you're a psych major, but it turns out you're a Sabat major. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember that saying, and, and so I, I took two classes with Sabat, and I was like, okay, yeah, I am a psych major. And then I took one class that was a not Sabat class, and I was like, I am definitely not a psych major. Um, uh, name any names there. No, no names. Because <laughs> I think we were in that also. other class together. You were in that class also. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I didn't, I mean, I don't know that I knew um, what I wanted to do. Certainly, I didn't think that this path, the one that I'm on now, was one that would be open to me. Um, uh, my understanding was that the political world was as much as any, if not more than any, one built on familial connections, which I didn't have at the time. I guess I, I still don't have, uh, but uh, I, I, I never imagined doing any of the things that I've done. And not to say that any of the things that I've done are, are at all impressive, but, um, but, but I'd, I'd never imagined doing any of them. And uh, I mean, I was always interested in politics. I was always interested in in foreign relations more specifically. But yeah, I, I never really had an idea of what I wanted to do. I think the, the last time that I had like stated dreams was when I was like six and thought I was gonna go to the NBA. And then like, <laughs> I can, as, as my high school basketball coach used to say, I can jump over the Sunday newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious also what your parents' attitude was with regards to your like aspirations for college. I know they were both like, they are both in tremendously hardworking people, but did you, was there an expectation that you would go to college? Was there an expectation that you would go to like a top tier school? What were their attitudes on, on your like application process? Yeah. I mean, they were, um, they were as supportive as they could be, um, but they didn't have much background. Um, uh, and, and so I think uh, the thought was that, I would, I would hopefully continually, I think when we we're starting the application process, I would continue to keep my grades where they were and I would be really competitive for a lot of scholarships in state. Um, and I got into like honors programs at, at, at Penn, I grew up outside of Philly, so in, in Pittsburgh and Penn State. And uh, I think that was the thought. And um, I didn't apply to, to any Ivy League schools. Um, and uh, I applied to Georgetown, I applied to uh, University of Michigan, I got into their honors program, and I was really excited actually about going to University of Michigan because a lot of my close friends uh, from high school had, a couple of my close friends from high school had gone to University of Michigan, and, uh, and then I saw the price tag there and the fact that um, they were pretty clear that all financial aid there was going towards in-state students, and so um, that quickly fell off, and then I got my financial aid package from Georgetown, and um, and it was a game changer. I mean, I, I I used to say that I had 
uh, close to 50,000 reasons to go to Georgetown. <laughs> the fact that it was, it was, it was my top choice. And so, um, did you play early action in Georgetown, I forget. Yeah, I did early action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I fell in love with the campus right away. I fell in love right away. I remember it was, it was a rainy day. Um, my, <laughs> my dad drove with me and stayed in the car the entire time. <laughs> like, I'm not going into that Catholic. He's <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not walking those wet grounds. And, <laughs> and I don't know that he thought that we would be able to afford it. It was a really gray and disgusting day, but even still, um, I was like, this feels right. Tate spoke to this in, in, in his interview about this idea of kind of like a superpower that he felt that he had. Um, and I think there's some truth to it. I think the fact that I didn't have my parents having any expectations uh, on me um, meant that I felt that I had the freedom to, to follow my own path. And that path has since been kind of windy and uh, in all different directions. Um, but it has allowed me to kind of find myself and find my way towards where I am now. Um, and, and I couldn't have asked for more supportive parents along the way. And I couldn't have asked for a better place to grow up than Lower Marion. I mean, your mom also is, you know, not to mention probably makes the best hummus yeah, that's true. on the East Coast. And I was a very fortunate beneficiary of that hummus during my four years at Georgetown. On the off chance that she's listening, uh, which is <laughs> 0. 0.005, uh, it is the best hummus. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I, I do think that's one of the great things about Georgetown is, at least when we were applying, I think their whole fina financial aid system was exclusively need-based. I don't even think they offered merit-based scholarship. So it frees up a lot of money for the people that needed it in order to go. And I, I think that makes sense for a school like Georgetown too, that has so many people from wealthy backgrounds who may, may have qualified for a merit scholarship. But I think that money is better served going to people who wouldn't be able to go to that school if not for the financial aid package. Yeah. So, you know, you thought about majoring in psychology after having Sabat, um, and then you end up deciding on majoring in government. What was that process? And I know you said that you weren't one of those people who came into Georgetown. And there are so many of these people who, who go to Georgetown specifically knowing that they're going there because they want to work in politics after. So you weren't one of those people, but why did the government major appeal to you? And when you chose a government major, did you think that that was going to lead to a career in politics or something else? Or it was just something to you know keep your options up? I, I chose the government major uh, in a way that was, it was unexpected. So I, I came in um, having effectively placed out of, of Spanish um, because of, uh, I took it in high school and, and placed out with the AP test. Um, and so I think I only had to take one semester of Spanish and then I was good. Um, and so, or maybe I didn't even need to and I just decided to take a semester of Spanish. Um, and I really liked it. So I took another semester and met uh, this professor, Veronica Salas Reese, who was the director of Latin American Studies program at Georgetown. And she ran this program uh, in Quito, in, in Ecuador. And you did four days of, of study in um, Universidad de San Francisco de Quito, which was in this like really beautiful, picturesque town called Cumbaya, like 45 minutes outside of Quito. And, and then um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you're doing, whether you're doing race, gender and ethnicity, which was one program, the other one was like environment. And so you, based on whichever program you're doing, um, you, you spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday 
doing stuff in, in like throughout the country of Ecuador. Um, anyway, uh, Veronica saw his reach, uh, she approached me and said, um, I think you would be a really good fit for this program. I want you to come for this information session. So I went to the information session. She puts on this like amazing PowerPoint and it's like all these kids having a blast in Ecuador. Then she passes out like this folder with like more specifics as to the program. And uh, I see the price tag and I immediately say, there's no way this is gonna work out. Um, and, and I'm looking around and, and I don't think anybody else is batting an eye. Um, and so I, I leave that night. Uh, I don't really follow up with uh, Professor Sally's Reese and she reaches back out to me and is like, hey, what do you think about this program? And I told her, uh, frankly, that I didn't think um, it was uh, designed for families like mine, I think is the wording that I used. Um, and she stayed on me for the next year. She said, this will change your life, do it. This will change your life, do it. This will change your life. Finally, she, she convinced me and I did it. And I did this program in Ecuador and it was my first time in South America. Um, and it, it did, it changed my life. It was, um, it was an eye-opening experience uh, to see poverty like I had never seen, to see um, like the systematic marginalization of communities in a way that I had never seen deliberately by the government in order to um, maintain power and maintain status quo. And so I think um, it was the first time where I felt that public policy mattered. I think it was the first time that I felt that government mattered. And larger than that, I think it was the first time that I realized that U.S. relations with the region mattered. Um, no matter just kind of small changes um, have huge impact. And so uh, I came back and, um, and immediately kind of declared as a government Spanish double major and, and uh, ended up studying in Buenos Aires my junior year uh, and then did Columbia, uh, lived and worked in Columbia the year after my senior year. Um, but it was never, like I mean, I, like I said in the beginning, I, I think I was always interested in government. I was always interested in the power of, of, of um, U.S. influence and U.S. aid and development. Um, but, but again, I never thought it was in the cards for me. And, and I think that experience in Ecuador changed things. And I didn't know if it would mean a career in politics. I certainly didn't think it would. But it did put me on a different path than I expected to be on, certainly when I applied to Georgetown. You know, you're talking about your time in South America. You studied abroad in Ecuador. You did a semester in Argentina. Um, and then there were also experiences that you had. So you, I remember you worked at the Department of Justice, I think our senior year of college. And looking back on the resume that you built just in college, like not even talking about post-grad, but just if you isolate your college experiences, it actually seems like very tailored to what you're doing now as the director of a Latin America focused think tank. So at that point in college or even towards the end of college, do you have a sense of like, this is gonna be my niche in politics if that's the direction I wanna go in? Or, or did it kind of just come naturally after you graduated and you, know, you enjoyed your time in South America, you enjoyed the government major, but you didn't really know how it was all gonna to come together at the time? Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't know how it was gonna to come together at the time. Um, I <clears throat> Um, so I, I had applied for the, when I was in Argentina, um, I had I applied for the early assurance program for the law school. And 
thought that that was going to be the path that I was going to go on. Um, not necessarily because I had a burning desire to practice law, um, but because I thought it would put uh, my family on a, a, a safer path, perhaps. Um, and uh, and I applied and and I got in, and I think that's the path that I thought I would be on. And in some respects, I guess I am on, uh, but it's just since taken a, a weird detour. But I never thought, like, I, I never thought that, that what I'm doing now, I didn't even know that this existed. Um, I didn't know what a think tank was. I didn't know uh, how working in the Senate works. I, I mean, I remember my junior year, for the, the summer before senior year, I sent a bunch of applications to the Hill, um, hoping to intern. and crickets i mean didn't even get one interview and, and now i know obviously that you don't get even an interview unless you have <laughs> somebody in the office exactly um, and uh but i mean i was st- i mean i remember looking at it was it was it was a tough time because i remember like looking at my resume and being like i i don't know what I, what i can do to be to, to be more competitive and uh just sending it out to i think it was every member of of, of the pennsylvania delegation and just nothing and We're definitely in the same boat like i i obviously didn't really have that much of an interest in working in politics but i think a lot of people when they're at georgetown feel like that's something they should do when they're there is intern on the hill and i applied everywhere didn't get anything i got one interview with a congressman who's a member of the tea party <laughs> the person who was interviewing me took one look at my resume and was like oh you're from santa monica <laughs> like immediately knew that that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> Are you a North Montana guy? <laughs> I'm curious also about, so, you know, you graduate from college, you had Georgetown Law lined up for, you know, whenever you wanted to go. You also had a position, I think, at Coburn Kim, which is a law firm in D.C., and we'll talk about this later, too, but you had that position lined up as well. And then you ended up getting this fellowship through Princeton in Latin America that would allow you to live and work in Colombia for a year after college. So what was, what was the process of, of making that decision like to, to forgo the law firm, forgo law school, at, le- at least for a bit? Um, how much of it was informed by your desire to go back to South America and live there again? And how much of it was career focused? So I, I think it was almost entirely um, my desire to go back to South America. Um, like, I don't know that I saw an end game in going to Colombia outside of, I felt like I still had this burning desire to want to see if I could do good in the region. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll do this for a year. Um, and then I'll get back on course. Um, for me, my thought at the time was, okay, I'm going to do this for a year, but I have this safety net where I can go back to Cobra and Kim, and then uh, and then I can go to law school, and then like everything still ends up aligning. But I didn't expect the impact in the same way that the Ecuadorian impact um, moved me. I didn't expect the Colombian impact to move me as much as it did, uh, the Colombian experience rather to move me as much as it did, and, and to that I, that started changing things a lot. I think. What were some of the things that you worked on when you were living there? And, and you were in a homestay, right? So you were you were living in a homestay. And you're working for a law firm, but what were some of the experiences that you had there outside of you know just those two things? So I was working um, as a Princeton Latin America fellow for an uh, NGO uh, based in New York called the um, the Vance Center for International Justice, um, and so the Vance Center had done transitional justice work in the aftermath of armed conflict in 
South Africa, Guatemala, and Brazil. Um, and we're basically applying best practices from those experiences to the Colombian experience. Colombia had been at the time, for those who don't know, um, uh, I was there 2014, 2015. So it was still in the midst of the longest running armed conflict in the world. Um, uh, about 50 years of, of armed conflict um, in a country of, of 50 million paralyzed and victimized by about 200,000 people, um, whether it was the paramilitaries, the FARC guerrillas, and then the, the Colombian military involved as well. And uh, I mean, I think you touched down in Bogota and um, you immediately noticed at the time and, and still um, that there are soldiers on, on many street corners. Um, and, and that's the first sign that you see, wow, you're, you're in a place that is in the midst of armed conflict. And, and I think that was a stunning experience um, to be walking down the streets of, um, of relatively well-developed neighborhoods, but you still see armed men everywhere. The, the work I was doing was, was, was transitional justice related. And then it was also um, the Vance Center had been working on an amicus brief in favor of marriage equality. So it's basically applying the decisions, applying uh, the arguments from the U.S. v. Windsor decision here in the U.S. to the Colombian context. And so um, I was the only representative of the Vance Center on the ground in Bogota working on these two projects, which was just this extremely empowering experience because I was obviously way out of my league and way out of my depths. As a 23-year-old, um, I interfaced at the time with uh, a guy who had just run for, for president uh, in Colombia and who's now, uh, he was recently the minister, he was recently the, the, the secretary of state equivalent, he's now the minister of defense. Um, and I was having meetings with this guy trying to convince him that that the path to peace was worth taking and uh, i'm sure he was just laughing behind behind closed doors um but uh it was this really empowering experience to feel like every day not only on a personal side every day i was learning something and really challenging my my assumptions on on everything um but on a professional side feeling like i was having impact and being able to see the impact of the work that i was doing daily um, in the form of these conferences that we organize, um, supporting the peace process and, and bringing in these kind of renowned speakers. Um, we brought in Kofi Annan. We had a conference with um, the deputy prosecutor of the International Criminal Court and, and making the case for peace at a time where there was such an appetite on the streets of Bogota for peace was just this really cool experience. Like you could feel it um, that, that like after decades of armed conflict, they were ready. Uh, to turn the page, despite all of these feelings that one might have, whether it's, I mean, I mean, so the streets of Bogota in the 80s and the 90s were were not at all safe, um, and and I think everybody knows somebody who has been had been affected by it, yet they were willing to forgive and move forward, and and I think that was just a really inspiring example, um, and and to be able to work on that for a year, like I don't think that that's something that one shakes. So I come back, right? I come back. The peace accord isn't yet signed by the time right. I leave. I come back and I'm like still following everything that's going on there. Um, and so part of me felt like I, I like I left it in, in Colombia. And so I think part of me knew pretty early on that it wasn't the same. Um, and, and whatever path that I had set up for myself uh, before leaving for Colombia uh, had, had changed uh, for, for good. When was the peace accord? It was a couple of years ago that it was signed, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was signed 
2016. And so I was there, I, I got back stateside July, 2015. Okay. Um, but I mean, uh, wh while we're talking about Columbia, it's just uh, yeah. for, 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 I mean, I know you went uh, relatively recently. It is an absolutely stunning country. Oh, it's um, beautiful there. With unbelievable people. And it's, um, I mean, it, it was arguably the best year personally and professionally that I've ever had. And there were just so many experiences. I mean, I remember, I remember uh, there was one point towards the end of my year in Bogota where um, my uncle was really sick. And, um, and I went to, I like, there's no, there are no, uh, there's a very small Jewish community in, in Bogota, um, but, but uh, like very, very, very small Jewish community in Bogota. Um, uh, so was, I, there's like a, a synagogue that was like up on this hill uh, that I would bike to work every morning and I would see it from a distance for, for the, over this course of the year. Um, and you're like, you know, no, that, like, that is synagogue. No, it can't be. Yeah. It can't be. It can't be. <laughs> But uh, but my 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 uncle was really really sick, and so uh, I went to the synagogue um, uh, towards the end of my time there. And um, and for anybody who knows, I'm not, I'm not well. First of all, I'm not particularly religious, but for anybody who knows synagogues in Latin America, they are heavily heavily guarded um, because in in the 80s there was um, a terrorist attack on this synagogue in, in in part. I think this is why. But there was a terrorist attack on the synagogue in Buenos Aires, and and a lot of them just started putting security guards out in front of these synagogues and so i go to the synagogue in in bogota and the, you have, they ask you questions there are people outside just like uh who do you know here like why are you here like who's <laughs> they ask you like who your rabbi is at your synagogue like and, the process of coming into israel yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, ask, like, they ask you like who your rabbi is in your synagogue in your hometown in the u.s as if oh yeah like like rabbi friedman i know him but anyway i go into the synagogue and and, and at the end, they have a dinner, and the chief rabbi of, of the synagogue in, in Bogota stands up. I don't know if I ever told you this story. Uh, and he goes, um, everybody in this congregation is important to me. But tonight, there is somebody who is particularly important. And he calls me out. And, uh, and I was blown away because I'm standing up in the synagogue of a couple hundred people who I don't know at all. Yeah. I've never been to this place. And there, and he's just like, he, he's a gringo, uh, but he's here, uh, he's here working on the peace process and he's, he's trying to help Colombia achieve peace. And, wow. I and I stand up and the entire congregation is clapping. And like, I don't like, I think those moments uh, are really tough to, sh to come back to the US, to go back to an office life and to shake. And yeah. to be like, Okay, well that that chapter of my life is over. I felt like I like I can wipe my hands clean. I did my thing. Uh, let's let's go on to 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 business as usual. To um, doc review. To doc review exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there were so many experiences like that in Colombia where it was just like I felt so extremely privileged to be doing the work that I was doing. I felt like it felt like kind of like somebody let you into their home. Yeah, shared a bit of their family life with you. They do seem very welcoming there too. I mean, I, even just being there for a week, I was stunned by how welcoming the, yeah. the population was to people who clearly were tourists. Yeah. Didn't speak any Spanish. So I can imagine after you're there for a year, the, the impact that has on you is going to be huge. Yeah. Um, and there was like a, there was another moment where so um, the lead attorney on on the marriage equality case was a guy named Hunter Carter 
who is this trailblazer for marriage equality now um, uh, in, in the, the hemisphere. He's one of the leading figures of, of the marriage equality movement in, in the hemisphere. And so Hunter, based in New York, but his husband is Colombian from Medellin. And so I'm, I'm traveling around the country and, uh, and Hunter invites me to his apartment in Medellin, which is the second largest city in Colombia. Um, we're, we're on Hunter's balcony, like overlooking, so Medellin is a valley, uh, at the top of one of these slopes, overlooking the entire city of Medellin. And we're having a beer. Uh, again, I'm 23 at the time. Hunter is just this like massive figure in the movement. And, uh, and so we're just, we're talking and he turns to me and he's like, hey, um, the marriage equality fight is, is really picking up in Chile. Um, and uh, I'm testifying before the, the Chilean Congress you're going to need to do the, the, the this whole marriage equality thing in Colombia by yourself for a little bit. Um, and I'm just like, what? Like me? <laughs> and like, I think there was just these small moments um, that in retrospect made me feel as though doing that sort of work mattered. And, right. and, um, and I think so, coming from a place where, you're trying to find out what it is that you're supposed to be doing in this world outside of just kind of doing better than the generation before you um, to, to feel like you were having that sort of real impact uh, was again, I think when I got back to the States, it was something that I couldn't shake. And I remember like going to a mall with a friend and being in a food court. I remember this vividly and just feeling like everything was just like everything like smelled and tasted and felt just like stale. And I was yeah. like, I need to, I need to feel like I'm doing something worthwhile again. It's, it's really cool. You know, just having been to Colombia, I think since they signed the peace accord, um, because when you mentioned that you landed there and there were armed guards on every street corner, that was not my experience going two years ago. And so it's really cool to hear you talk about that and know that you actually played a role in that process. Um, the smallest, smallest, smallest possible role. Yeah, but you know, still, I mean, it's that has completely changed what their country is like there. And to even play a small role in something that has that big of an impact, I think, is incredible. I'm curious if, taken as a whole, if that that feeling of of you know making an impact in a positive way through politics, if you felt like it's easier to have like an individual impact now that you're working in politics in the States, or if you felt like every action that you did in Colombia had, had the potential to have much more of an impact there than it, than it does here. I think, so I, I'm on now um, like this advisory council for Princeton Latin America. And mm -hmm. we, had, we had Oscar Arias, who's the former uh, president of Costa Rica, um, and a former Nobel laureate come and give this keynote address at, at this anniversary gala. And, um, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, but he said this thing that, I mean, I was filled with goosebumps all over. He said, um, effectively, you who have lived in our streets, you, you who have walked in our neighborhoods, you who know the value of a U.S. dollar abroad, it is your duty to, to tell your friends and your family and your country about what it means for US development. And the US, I think he quoted at the time, I think he was just like an $800 billion, which was the US defense budget, what that means in the developing world. Yeah. So I think that sort of perspective, having lived in those streets, particularly Colombia, a country so closely aligned with the US that depends so much on US aid, 
when you come back and you're working in the Senate, for instance, um, on, on issues related to the U.S.-Columbian relationship or issues related to the inter-American relationship generally, I think you still feel impact because you know that though you're sitting in this building in D.C., you know that there are reverberating effects. You know that they're feeling it on the ground in the country, even though it just feels like you're negotiating over uh, a figure. And, uh, and so I think, yeah, you don't see it directly. You don't see, yeah. um, you don't feel this, uh, this momentum on the ground rising as kind of you're, you're rising to a crescendo of, of peace, um, the, which is a, like a thing that you can very much feel when you were on yeah. the ground in Colombia at the time. Um, but you do know, I think if you have the perspective of, of having lived in Ecuador, having lived in Argentina, having lived in Colombia and, and traveled the region, um, you know that the U.S. isn't a silent voice and that when the U.S. speaks, whether it's on questions that are symbolic um, uh, or that appear symbolic in, in the realm of human rights, um, or whether it's just a bill that, um, that, that dedicates an extra X amount to development, like that, that matters. It, it, it moves not just lives, but it moves communities. It moves not just communities, but it moves cities. It moves not just cities, but it moves countries. You come back, you're at Coburn, Kim, and you take some time off from there to work for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. Um, can you talk about your role in the campaign and how you would characterize that experience um, just like in light of everything that you've done since then and how it's impacted your path um, since, since working on that campaign? Yeah, um, so... I was an organizer for the Clinton campaign from May of 2016 to November of 2016. Um, uh, and I was based in Arlington. Um, uh, and I think that had a similar impact on me in a, in a way that I similarly did not expect. Um, I, I think that I, w I think it was really inspiring to see um, people come in and into our campaign office day in and day out to volunteer, um, largely, frankly, um, retired elder women um, come in day in and day out because of a belief that the country ought to be a certain way um, and dedicate their time, dedicate their energy, dedicate their resources. Oftentimes they came with food. Um, they would send me text messages making sure that I was eating. Um, do they bring Twizzlers? Not enough, Frank. <laughs> I mean, they came no with amount the, of Twizzlers would be yeah. <laughs> Costco platters, and I'm like digging under and trying <laughs> to squeeze the Twizzler. And I'm like all of a sudden starting to incorporate Twizzlers into like all of my conversations. And stuff. <laughs> um, but <laughs> not to feed my Twizzler addiction. Um, but but it was I think it was really inspiring. And I mean, I think there were um, there similar. I think there were moments there where um, where you realize that all of this stuff, uh, as corny as it might sound, matters. And, and like I remember, we were we had a campaign event in our office, which was just to bring a bunch of uh, Arlingtonians uh, together and, and to talk about like why this election mattered to them, and hopefully to inspire them to to volunteer more. Um, and this woman stood up and said, um, she had probably like a, a five or six year old daughter. Uh, she stood up and, and said, um, so she was, she was white, her husband was black, and she said, I want to live in a world where the only president that my daughter knows looks like daddy and looks like mommy. And I like everybody was just like broke down. Like that, it was just like 
little things like that, recognizing how big of an impact that it has, um, particularly on, on younger generations, I thought was really inspiring. And, and I thought the work was grueling. I mean, I think we had, I had three days off in total over like we worked weekends yeah, i remember you were working like crazy back then. yeah so it was like it was like 15 16 hour days three days off in total over the course of whatever it was seven months so it was, it was really exhausting she won virginia uh, so that felt good um but obviously you did in your district too didn't she have i mean you know there's a lot of factors there but i remember that she had like an overwhelming uh, victory in in your particular district that you've been working in organizing too. Right? Yeah, so she did she did really well in, in our area and um, and she won Virginia by larger margins than, than President Obama had won. So we did we did well in Virginia, but uh, but obviously it it didn't uh, didn't change the outcome of the election. But even still, I mean, I I I remember like the the weeks right after that election. Again, like going back to the safety nets that I had set up for myself, which was okay, like. I could go back. I, I felt like I had left Cobra and Kim on really good terms, yeah. and um, and they were they were happy with my work product throughout that year. And um, and I was like, okay, maybe I can go back to Cobra and Kim. I still have law school waiting for me. I have deferred right. law school for an additional year, and so I was like, okay, I'm like I'm back on on that path. Um, though I've taken a couple of detours, like that path still exists for me. And so I, I did, I ended up going back to Cobra and Kim. It's still the same experience I think that I had that first year post Columbia, where it just, the work was super interesting. The people were super smart, but I just didn't feel it uh, deep in my bones. I didn't feel like, I was like, I could do this for a little bit. I could do this for a lot of bit, but I know that it wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't feel like uh, I'm, I'm doing something that is extremely impactful. And I frankly, I mean, I think I looked around in the office and I saw a lot of the associates. Um, I think a couple of the associates were trying to get jobs. Uh, there was one in particular there was, who was trying for for over a year to get a job working in government, working in politics. Um, and he had gone to a really good law school. He had done really well. He had worked at this big firm. Then he came over laterally to Coburn Kim and he was, I think he was like entering his late thirties and trying to circle back for jobs that at that point would have probably been too junior for me. Yeah. And, um, and it, I just felt, I think, I mean, I remember having that conversation with him and I just felt so sad. I don't like, I couldn't explain it, but I just felt sad. And it was just like, I mean, you can, you can go on a certain path that makes you feel, um, like, like this is a path for you, but I think ultimately like you have to be the architect of, of your own life. And I think for him, he let other people pick up the, the hammer and every other tool that goes into being an architect. That I <laughs> um, and, and finally, when he was ready to reclaim that toolbox, he felt like a lot of doors had closed for him. And I think that moment made me think, well, I don't want to be in that position. Um, right. And, and, uh, and so I think that's, one of the reasons why I ended up committing to do Georgetown because I knew that I would have the opportunity to do stuff if I were to, to start taking classes at night to continue along a certain path um, and, and not feel that sort of regret that I had let other people kind of convince me that I should go here, I should go here, I should go here and and kind of take my foot off of the 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 pedal of the road that i was on <laughs> a lot of metaphors there a lot of metaphors but um one thing that i can say is you definitely don't have to 
clearest understanding of what what an architect does but <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right the architect isn't actually the one constructing the houses maybe you lost that that brain cell when you took a one of your charges charges oh man <laughs> you lost that <laughs> Uh, I have I have constructed zero of my IKEA furniture, so that that uh, that should give you some some comfort. <laughs> when you went to law school, it wasn't with the express purpose of of working for a law law firm for an extended period of time, right? I didn't think so. I mean, I, I think um, I think I, tr I I ended up choosing to do Georgetown because it provided me with that flexibility, and so I said I'm going to use every experiment that I have my first year of law school to try to figure out a way to break into this to, to the hill which was which seemed like this place that even though I had done everything that I was quote-unquote supposed to do it, it just wasn't going to open up for me um, like I, I didn't there, there was nothing that I could do except for keep pushing uh, and, and so that's what I did I spent most of my first year trying to figure out how to get onto the hill and having meetings with people and was fortunate to, to meet this guy uh, who has now become a good friend, um, who was Senator Leahy's uh, senior counsel on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, and, and he, I mean, I, I started applying stuff for stuff after my first year of law school um, for, for exclusively health stuff. Um, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I also did uh, an application for the SEC. I forgot about that. Um, very but, different path there. Very, very different, yeah. very different. Because the SEC too, I think people view that internship, it's a very prestigious internship, but they view it as, you know, one that people will take with the expectation that they're going into corporate law after. Yeah. And that was the thought, like I was, I was hedging my bets. Um, and, and I was like, in the same way that I had all of these safety nets lined up post-grad, um, like I had Cobra and Kim, I had, I don't know if, if I should call them safety nets, but I had these backup options. Yeah. Um, I had um, Coburn Kim, I had law school. Um, and so like the SEC was like to keep one foot in the door should I decide to go to private practice. And I think taking that position on the Hill, um, which was an awesome offer with an awesome boss, with an awesome member, still it felt like the first time that I was taking this big leap of faith without a backup option. And it ended up, kind of pushing me down this path that I'm really happy about, um, which is, uh, so I, I did the summer with Senator Leahy, then um, Justice Kennedy retires at the end of that summer, and I stay with the Leahy team through the, the next year, basically, um, working the Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, working the bar confirmation, working on the family separation crisis um, at the border, and then eventually going over to, to Senator Kane's office to do um, Latin America stuff. But I mean, I think that, that felt like the first time where there was a lot of unease because I, um, I had felt comfortable with the, the calculated risks that I had taken by going to Columbia, but knowing that I had this other option um, or, or going to work on the Clinton campaign, but knowing that I could, because I left in good terms with Cameron Kim, I could probably come back. Yeah. Or uh, it felt like, okay, I'm going to do this. And it was such a liberating feeling also. If you know you want to go down a certain path, but you always have these safety nets, I don't think you're going to pursue what you really want to pursue with quite as much vigor. If you know that the other options still exist, um, it, it, it's, it would be tougher to fully devote yourself to that one, that one path. So there, there's a lot of experiences that you've had 
during law school, whether it's working for Leahy, working for Tim Kaine, working for the Department of Defense that we could talk about. But I, I do want to focus on um, your time working for the Senate Judiciary Committee, because part of that time when you were with them was during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. And that whole process was very much in the, in the national spotlight at the time in the same way that the Black Lives Matter movement and COVID is now, the whole, the eyes of the whole nation was on those hearings. And I remember watching those the entire day. I think a lot of people were. So what was it like being a part of that process that was so squarely in the, in the national spotlight? And what was your role during that process? Because I, I remember seeing pictures of the senators on the panel that was questioning Kavanaugh, and you could actually even see in some of the pictures you sitting behind Senator Leahy. So you clearly were playing an important role there, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that experience was like as a whole, too. Uh, it, was, it was an inspiring experience in a lot of ways. Um, I think seeing the movement um, very much at the center of the Me Too movement, seeing the movement that, that rose up um, in support and defense of um, Blasey, Dr. Blasey Ford um, was amazing to see in the halls of the Senate almost every day. Um, was amazing to see on, on news um, broadcasts almost every night. Um, I think knowing everything that she sacrificed, Dr. Blasey Ford and others, frankly, who came forward who, whose names are less known, but, but who, who similarly sacrificed a lot in terms of their privacy, in terms of their potentially their careers in terms of their safety, which was the case of Blasey Ford, who, was, who, who very much feared her, her family's livelihood. I thought all of it was, it was a massive show of patriotism and it was a massive show of courage. Um, and, and it felt surreal to be in the same room as that sort of, of largeness. Um, like, I, I mean, I remember I, uh, we, so Leahy's team was, there were about four of us um, staffing him. Uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so I wasn't, and so because the Blasey Ford um, was, was the, there was a lot of concerns about her safety, they kept her testimony in one of the smaller um, committee rooms. And then uh, Kavanaugh's, well, Kavanaugh's was actually in that same room, but there was a break in time so they could get her out. And so I wasn't in the room for her testimony. I was in the room for, for his. And I mean, I, I think generally speaking, staffing a senator to any hearing is this surreal experience because I think you are sitting behind him or her and they are reading words that you have written oftentimes because they're coming from so, so many different hearings um, and, uh, and they rely a lot on their staff. And so I think hearing them generally, whether it was kind of the circuit court noms or the district court nominees, when they're reading things that you've written is a really empowering experience. But in a moment where all of the national attention is on that was, was a really unique experience. And I remember telling myself, I should be like, take, I should be writing, I should be journaling this. Yeah. Um, and, and I never did, which I regret, but I think seeing, being there every day and, and seeing everything that those women who came forward had to endure, um, yet they still came forward was just, I think the epitome of, of what this Me Too movement is about, and um, and what um, the country is about too. Yeah, and why did the fact uh, that he still got confirmed? Second. <laughs> and but but I, I I don't know. I mean I, I remember. So the picture that you're talking about was 
um, was right when Lindsey Graham like points at some of the Democratic senators and, and he goes kind of off on a tear. Oh, I remember that moment, yeah. Like you're smearing the character of a good man. And I think we were all kind of in a state of shock because it very much felt like a show. Um, and, and here's this woman who is very credibly and very courageously come forward and it's as if you you had your ears closed during the entirety of these days. Um, and I remember like waking up really early in those mornings and seeing people camped out outside of the Senate um, and holding up signs in the mornings, like at six in the morning, holding up signs in support of Dr. Blasey Ford. And I think everything about that moment was, was a, a real show of organizing, of, of activism, of, um, of, and of support for somebody who was willing to sacrifice so much, uh, really for truth. It was disappointing, obviously, when he was confirmed, having worked on it as much as we did. But I, I mean, I have the utmost admiration for, for Dr. Balzi Ford and every person who came forward. Were you nervous going into work in the morning on, on those days that the confirmation hearings were happening? Um, nervous. They're like a heightened. Was there a heightened anxiety during that time that was different from like any other hearing or any other day at, at the office? I mean, there were moments, so before it got a lot of national attention, there were moments where it seemed as though it was just another confirmation hearing, mm. um, which feels weird to say about the Supreme Court yeah. confirmation, which obviously has massive ramifications. Um, but before Dr. Blasey Ford's name came out to the public and before everybody started really zeroing in on all of these really serious um, allegations. Uh, like there were days where I like, I, I was like, I was handing uh, Justice Kavanaugh now um, documents and, and stuff like that. I mean, that was nerve wracking simply because I was nervous that I was going to fall on the Senate floor <laughs> with cameras on. But like sitting behind Senator Leahy, I mean, I think a lot of the work that we had done, we had done the night before, so we didn't have that much of a role to play. At least I personally didn't have that much of a role to play. Our chief counsel was was very active in terms of being in Leahy's ear about where he should go and, and blah, blah, blah. But I think a lot of the, the floor speeches had been pre-written um, the night before. Uh, so I don't think there was a, a heightened sense of nerves. Um, I think there was a point where we felt like, wow, this might actually, we might actually stop this, this confirmation. And so, so there was that sense of anticipation, but but I don't think there was ever a point where I was just like, I'm really nervous to screw something up because I think a lot of the work we did was was A, as a team, B, um, there were more smarter and more talented people above me really shouldering that load. And, uh, and I was just there to help any way I could. You know, it's obvious for anybody listening to this and listening to me read out your resume at the start of this discussion, just how diverse your work experience has been. And I think in a way, the nature of your work experience is, is somewhat indicative of the millennial trend with regards to like how millennials are approaching their careers and dipping their feet in a lot of different things. And I know part of that is the case with you because you've been in law school for the last few years too. So it's kind of allowed you the flexibility of trying different things during that time. But what do you feel like you've gained from from moving between a lot of different positions instead of just sticking it out, you know, in, in one or two different roles. Yeah, uh, it feels like a, a real privilege um, to to have had a lot of these experiences, particularly before law school. I think, um, and and having a sense of what I wanted to use my degree for, and and I think I've tried to make purposeful 
decisions um, in terms of my career choices. But I think each, obviously each career stop that you have gives you more information about what you like and what you don't like and, uh, and what you're good at and what you're not good at. And so it feels like a real privilege to have made a bunch of these stops and to, to have gained a lot of uh, certainly insight, maybe skills, and, and kind of found a way to, to zig diagonally so it's not just a horizontal switch. Um, and, and so I think you, you said earlier that like it seems like everything kind of has made sense in terms of like doing this experience leading to this experience leading to that experience. I think all of it has been pretty serendipitous and I think one always falls on uncertainty um, and, uh, and I've certainly fallen on uncertainty in, in, in many times, but I think um, I've been fortunate to uh, have really supportive family and, and um, colleagues and, uh, and, and opportunities have opened up for me in part out of luck in part because I've just worked at it until luck has hit me in the face and uh and so i don't i don't know what's next but it feels like like i'm on a certain path that i'm really happy about i i think that's really interesting what you said about working hard until luck hits you in the face and one of the things that my parents always told me was that in a way you make your own luck you have to give yourself the opportunity to be in that position where luck can actually like have a positive impact on the direction you're going. Um, and I think that it sounds like that's definitely been the case with you too. I mean, you've worked really hard and there have been fortuitous opportunities, but those have only come as a product of your hard work too. So now you're, you know, you're at the think tank, you're, I know you just started this like a month ago, right before graduating from Georgetown Law. So you're executive director of Global Americans. What does that role entail? And what is the type of work that the think tank is doing right now? So it'll be, um, it would be malpractice to not make a pitch uh, <laughs> to anybody listening. I don't know how many people that is, but to anybody still listening um, to go to theglobalamericans.org to learn more. And, uh, and maybe if you're feeling in the giving spirit, uh, check out the donate today page. But um, <laughs> the, the organization is uh, focused on strengthening US Latin American relations. Um, I first was exposed to uh, Global Americans while I was working for Senator Kane um, on Latin America policy. And so they came and briefed. Senator Kane sits on the Western Hemisphere subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So they came in and briefed staffers who work on those issues for, for various senators. Um, and so we're all in one room together. And I was, I was blown away by, by their briefing, in part because it was very different from other briefings that I had experienced over the course of that year, in that they were focused on really creative, nuanced issues, um, whether it was climate change, digitalization of, of transportation, on food security, on blue economy issues, on, on education transfers, on all of these things that, um, that I think a lot of other think tanks in the space um, were not necessarily giving as much attention to. Um, though they, those other think tanks are also obviously doing really, really good and important work. And so they made this briefing. The, the former executive director was a guy named uh, Chris Sabatini, who um, I had followed for a really long time and who is brilliant and um, was moving, uh, unbeknownst to me, was moving to London um, to head up Chatham House's Latin America practice. And so um, uh, they briefed us. I asked a couple of really pointed questions 
and uh, after the briefing, they they uh, maybe a couple of weeks later they called me and and said that they they were starting this informal search and asked me if I would be interested. Anyway, long story short, I, I end up accepting the job as executive director. What that entails is um, basically overseeing the think tank. Um, so I am I'm the head of the think tank, um, which regularly churns out analysis and content related to the U.S. Latin American relationship. Um, we do conferences, we do webinars, we do um, programs through foundation uh, and, and State Department funding. Uh, so for instance, we're going to be looking at misinformation in Latin America in, in the coming months. Uh, I myself am going to write a bunch. We, uh, we do reports, we do working papers, we have this kind of working group model where we bring together um, former diplomats or current diplomats as well um, and, and really think long and hard about complex issues and put together papers that we then present to policymakers in the region and in the U.S. to try to move the policy debate. Um, the board is exceptional. It is really top of the line, world-class thinkers um, in, in the U.S. Latin America space. I think Global Americans is really uniquely positioned um, to impact the policy debate in the years to come, um, not only because of the composition of the board, but because of the focus that we have on, on issues that I, I think are blind spots for many other organizations and, and the relationships that we have in the region. I think what makes Global Americans unique and what attracted me to it was uh, that it's not as many other organizations here in DC are. It's not very DC centric. Um, I think Global Americans prides itself on elevating the voices and the ideas of Latin American change makers who are doing the work on the ground, um, whether that's academics, journalists, mayors, governors, uh, or, or uh, representatives in, in, in Latin American capitals. It is really not imposing solutions on problems that exist, but elevating solutions and, and collaborating to find them. Um, and, and that feels really unique and that feels really exciting. We have a podcast um, that I highly recommend. It's called Two Gringos with Questions. Uh, it's, it's, like really this, really it's like this episode. Yeah, it's like this episode, exactly. Two more interesting people and oftentimes a third more interesting guest. <laughs> um, uh, Definitely more interesting host, too. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's been really great. And, uh, and I feel really, really lucky. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I never would have imagined being a first generation college kid coming from Philly, going to Georgetown, that I would be doing this now with the people that I'm doing it with. Um, all right. I have two fun questions for you that yeah. may or may not include, but uh, first one is favorite Latin American country that you've lived in. So between Ecuador, Argentina, and Colombia. Um, and then Philly or D.C. That was my best right there. That, um, I, I know that decision making is often like a, a <laughs> deliberate process for you too. So I really wanted to put you on the spot. Um, Okay, so favorite Latin American country that I've lived in. Uh, I'm, I'm partial to Colombia. Uh, I, I mean, I made lifelong friends there and had really meaningful, impactful experiences that will stay with me for, for many, many years. Um, and I went, I've been back now twice since I feel like I'm still overdue. Um, I mean, I could, write, I could write a love letter to Colombia. That place is just... Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. It's, uh, I mean, I went back a year ago um, 
kind of on a whim. I, I think I booked my ticket on a Thursday night and, and landed on a Friday night. Uh, so like within 24 hours I was there and like just walking the streets of, of Bogota, these streets that I used to live in, there is something magical about that place. And I think it's in part because you are, you have all of your senses, it feels simultaneously engaged. Like it is just such unimaginable beauty on the one hand, the smells because the street, uh, because the restaurants are oftentimes kind of jutting out towards the street are always hitting you wherever you go. Um, at the same time, you see pretty uh, heart-wrenching poverty. Um, and there are oftentimes smells of uh, dog feces and stuff like that. And so it's just Well, that, that might be one thing that Philly and Colombia have in common. <laughs> <laughs> I will not let you blast you so in Philly. But um, it, it just feels like all of your senses are engaged at once in this really unique way, uh, which makes you feel like, you are somehow living this like heightened self. I don't know. I I, I have a deep, deep love for that country, and um, and and am overdue to go back. Philly or DC? Uh, I would love to avoid this question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've been in DC on and off for for the past eleven years. Um, uh, so so much of my adult identity is tied to this place. Philly is also it's just uh, is great. Uh, <laughs> my family's there. Uh, good food, good bars. I could tell fantastic, you've been working fantastic in football. Fantastic football team. Um, I can tell yeah. you've been working in politics for six years now, based on your answer to that question. That was <laughs> perfect. It was a perfect politician answer. Right? Um, we were I, do, I do yeah, agree yeah. with what you said about Colombia, and it reminds me of a quote that it's actually Anthony Bourdain Day today. It's uh, June twenty sixth, which I think oh. is the day that. It's not the day he passed away. I think he passed away in March, but um, it is Anthony Bourdain Day. And he said something about Thailand once. He said, you really, when you come to Thailand, you realize that you've been living your life in black and white up until this point. And I felt that a little bit about Colombia. I didn't obviously travel as extensively as you did throughout that country, but everything is so vibrant there. I mean, the colors that you see there naturally occurring colors and you know ones that are part of the buildings there it's just so different from what we have here in the u.s uh, yeah i mean i loved every single minute that i spent in columbia all right last question best and worst part about living with me for four years <laughs> and and don't hold back because i'll edit it out if i don't like your answer uh, best and worst part this is like um, for like the three people on on Georgetown's campus who ever wondered what like our pillow talk would be like. This is this is this is that. <laughs> so we lived. Uh, for those who don't know, we lived not only together for four years, but we lived in the exact same room for four years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> yeah, we paid uh, over a thousand bucks a month to share a room our senior year, just yeah. to show expensive Georgetown is crazy. It's, this is a tough question because I feel like I know you like the back of my hand at this point. Um, and so like things that would otherwise seem like weird or off are just like, oh, it's a rolling thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the, 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 the most difficult thing about Roland is that uh, you can never tell if he's actually down to do something because uh, anything on the spectrum from no to maybe or I could be down is all a no. Um, the only yes answer is a definitive yes. Otherwise, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I could be down for that. 
You um, don't get the yes very often either. No. Ninety <laughs> percent of the time, it's I could be down. Yeah. yeah. Um, my favorite thing. Uh, I liked your every morning call to buoys. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> no, no, this this is Roland. Roland. <laughs> that was good. That was that was the best way to wake up every morning for a year. <laughs> buoys was such a magical place. Um, Right, like it was, it was, yeah. Uh, I was the Manhattan was the good one. I mean, yeah. I was a breakfast platter guy, but yeah, sure. and sure. I like their Italian hoagie too. But you, you've got the that that Italian hoagie place near you, yeah. The Italian God, place. I'm calling hoagies, I'm calling hoagies, you're hoagies. Fulfilling. You're fulfilling. You're fulfilling. Oh, oh man, that's from I don't know if that's from four years of living with you or three years in living in Philly. Yeah, no, the Italian oh. store is um, the Italian store is is as good as Wawa, uh, but it, it's missing some of the Wawa charm. It's missing the I Wawa. Like, the Wawa charm puts it above. Um, my favorite thing, my favorite Wawa thing, was in 2012, uh, the elections where Mitt Romney went to to Wawa to pander to the Pennsylvania voters. That was wonderful. <laughs> Watching it Romney try to use that touch screen because the rule in Philly is if you can't get it within 10 seconds, then you shouldn't be in the Wawa. Like you have to know happens <laughs> and get it within 10 seconds and get the heck out. Uh, and so Mitt was just like staring at the screen. I remember seeing that. That was hilarious. That's an important state to be able to, I mean, oh, yeah. one, Wawa is the most important thing. And two, that's a very important state to win. So, but it's expensive. Maybe we would have. Maybe we would have had four years of Romney if he had. Um, you could figure out the Wawa. We're familiar with Wawa. <laughs> um, but they're, they're expanding now, so like there are a couple now in DC. There's one in Georgetown. Yeah, yeah, I think I went last time I was there. Which is, I'm sure, making a killing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's like the perfect. Like it probably put Five Guys out of business. Five Guys is was closed. Yep. So I'm sure Wawa was right across the street. So I'm sure it had a, a part to play in that. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing that I miss in Philly. Because mm. Wawa in Philly is on every street corner. Oh, yeah, not to rub it in, but <laughs> maybe I might go get myself a, a Wawa sandwich right after this. Okay. Send you a picture of it, too. <laughs> All right, Guy, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, you were great, and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, let's go. Okay, let's go.